Hello, everybody. This is Volts for March 11th, 2022. Volts Podcast. Jack Linky and Kirti Datla on the ridiculous but extremely important EPA case before the Supreme Court. I'm your host, David Roberts. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard opening arguments in West Virginia versus EPA. Red states and coal companies are suing EPA, claiming that it overstepped its authority in creating the Clean Power Plan, an Obama-era policy meant to reduce carbon emissions at existing power plants. One interesting and relevant feature of the CPP is that it was never actually implemented and is not in effect. If it seems odd to you that petitioners are claiming to be harmed by a rule that does not exist, you are not alone. The fact that the court took this case at all seems to indicate that it is eager to have a say about EPA's authority over greenhouse gases in advance of the Biden administration writing a new rule. Climate advocates are bracing for the worst. There are several legal questions at stake in the case, ranging from narrow issues regarding the exact interpretation of statutory text to broad issues that relate to the ability of Congress to delegate rulemaking authority to administrative agencies at all. To help me dig into the details of the case and explore its possible outcomes, I called up two experts on the subject. Jack Linke is Regulatory Policy Director at the Institute for Policy Integrity and an adjunct professor at the New York University School of Law, where he teaches about regulatory policy. He is a longtime expert on the Clean Air Act and co-author of a book on the subject called Struggling for Air. Kirti Datla is the Director of Strategic Legal Advocacy at Earth Justice, Before that, she was a lawyer who briefed cases before federal courts and the Supreme Court, an attorney advisor in the Department of Justice, and a clerk for Supreme Court Associate Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She studies broader legal doctrines like jurisdiction and the scope of federal power. Linky, Datla, and I discuss the history of the case, whether SCOTUS should have taken it at all, the legal issues involved, and the possible rulings we might expect from the court, ranging from bad to terrible. Despite the absurdity of the situation, the conversation was a ton of fun and extremely educational. Jack Linky, Kirti Datla, welcome to Volts. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. I'm super excited, you guys, to dig into this. This is one of those stories, it's become a familiar experience in the last five years or so, where I sort of am looking at a story out of the corner of my eye, and I think, that seems kind of ridiculous. There must be more to it than that. And then I go look more closely, and when I do that, I realize the level of ridiculousness is so far beyond what I could have even imagined. So let's get into it. Let's start with a little background just for our listeners. Here is a quick bit of history. In 2015, Obama's EPA implements, or doesn't implement, comes up with and issues uh, the Clean Power Plan, which would try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at existing power plants. 
It faced a billion lawsuits in 2016. The Supreme Court took the extremely unusual step of staying the rule. And then, of course, Trump was elected. And then Trump's EPA issued a rule that would at once get rid of the clean power plan and implement the American Clean Energy ACE, his ACE rule. And then in 2021, a U.S. district court threw out ACE because it was hot garbage and thereby also threw out the throwing out of the clean power plan. So... Here we are now basically in chaos. Everything's up in the air. And now the Supreme Court is taking this case that is about basically the mechanisms that the clean power plan used, even though there is no clean power plan in existence. There's our capsule summary. So before we get into the uh, sort of the substance, the meat of the case, I want to just note a few things. So Jack, um, tell us who's on which side this time around, because it's a little bit different than it was back in the 2016 lawsuits. Sure. Well, uh, as far as who petitioned for Supreme Court review, you have some red state attorneys general and some coal companies. You notably didn't have any power companies petitioning for review, even though the entities regulated by the Clean Power Plan and the Affordable Clean Energy Rule were power plants. There are none. There are zero. So it's only red state attorneys general and coal companies. That's it on the right side of this? Uh, Kirti can correct me if I'm wrong. I think um, as far as who's actually filed briefs in the case, there are um, some electricity cooperatives. Mm, right. The rural cooperatives. Right. And I think the National Mining Association, right, is on. Um, but basically, yeah, it's the red states and the coal companies. And it's notable. The only reason I, I, I make a note of that is that last time around, you know, when the clean power plan was being sued, it was the regulated power companies that were suing. So, you know, the, the, the people seeking redress here are not even the regulated entities, which is one striking aspect of this case. Absolutely. So let's, before we get into the substance, let's talk about the standing to sue, because that's an issue in this case, because this case is notably weird in that the lawsuit has to do with a rule that does not exist and was never implemented. Is there any precedent for that? I think that's a question for Kirti. Yeah, I think you're right to, to be just so confused about what's happening here because <laughs> The current Supreme Court is one that cares deeply about standing. Right. I think last term there were six or seven decisions that touched on standing, and they have a very restrictive view of it. Um, yes, they've sent back a lot of, I mean, there's been a lot of high-profile cases in the last couple of years that they've refused to take on standing grounds, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, when anyone goes to the Supreme Court, they have to explain why the decision below, in this case, the D.C. Circuit's decision vacating the ACE rule, they have to say why that decision hurt them and why it benefits them to have that decision overturned. And, you know, one thing that's been pointed out in this case is, you know, how does it hurt the red states and the coal companies to have no rule on the books? Like, isn't <laughs> that group of folks, aren't they better off with no regulation in place? And 
you know, we can get into what their possible answers are, but I think just as a very basic intuitive matter, you can see why there's at least a serious, serious question about what's going on here. And I, I think the only other thing I'd mention is like, so you mentioned standing, you're totally right to bring it up, but also this is a matter of choice for the Supreme Court. Like they don't have to take cases for the most part, mm. they get to pick their cases and they don't take that many cases. And so this was a choice on their part, right? They wanted to take this case despite this kind of serious question about whether anyone has standing and whether there's any need for them to step in. So this is what they're choosing to spend their quite precious limited time on. Yeah, it's notable, I think, notable that they've done this. So, I mean, th at least in the first uh, day of arguments, this was the Solicitor General's basic approach, right? She didn't even really get into the substance of the case. She was just she was just arguing you shouldn't take this case. So will the justices at some point have to address standing? Will they have to answer that question? Because I can't imagine an answer. Like what is a what is the possible answer to what is the harm of a of a non-rule? Like what could they say? Yeah, I think I mean I'll just start by saying I think yes, they have to address it. Jurisdiction, standing, these are questions about the court's authority to hear a case at all, right? So I, I think given how much it's come up and given all the arguments, they're going to have to say something about it. And, you know, as I mentioned, I think there are kind of like two theories about why they're standing here. And maybe I know Jack has views on one of them, which is whether the clean power plan is currently injuring anybody. Yeah, I think um, one of the arguments that's been made is that like, well, the clean power plan could spring back into existence at any time, right? The Biden administration has said that it's not bringing it back but we can't count on that. And it, it's literally just not possible for the clean power plan to spring back into existence because... Well, I know we already beat it. We already, we're already passed and, it. And like all the clean power plan was, was a set of guidelines for states to develop plans. So, you know, the, the clean power plan said, here's the average emission rate that your fossil fuel fired power plants should achieve. Right. States, go back to your corners and come up with a plan for how you're going to achieve that, that average rate, whether it's through trading or some other means. And the courts stayed application of the rule. So those back in February 2016, right? So those plans were never developed. The deadline for submitting them to EPA has long since passed. So even if the clean power plan were to take legal effect again, there would necessarily need to be another rulemaking to set new deadlines. Right. Um, also, by the way, like on a nationwide basis, we've already achieved the uh, emission goals set by the Clean Power Plan. So what would you really be required to do? Yes, this is this is another irony that's worth just pausing on because this is what I mean about the layers of ridiculousness here. I just want to pause on this for listeners' benefit. The targets that were never implemented and now petitioners claim to be being harmed by have already been exceeded by the market itself. So it's not just that there's no harm because there's no rule. Even if there were a rule, there's no harm because the targets of the rule have already been met. Right. Renewables ended up being cheaper than expected. Gas ended up being cheaper than expected. Renewable tax credits that EPA didn't expect to be renewed back in 2015 were renewed. Right. So we, we just did better than EPA projected just through market forces alone and state policies. So that's how, that's how we got here. Right. Well, I am on the edge of my seat to see what they end up writing in their opinion about standing because it just seems so absurd on its face. 
But they're taking the case. That ship has sailed. (laughs) Oh, one other thing is when the court rules about how an agency must implement or, or how an agency can implement a law before the agency has actually done it, that's called an advisory opinion, right? And the Supreme Court is just not allowed to do that. That's not a thing. Yeah, that's totally right. Um, the like, you know, literal constitution <laughs> says that the federal courts can only address cases or controversies. And that's been interpreted to mean like a real dispute between real parties facing real consequences. And, you know, as we've been discussing, there's no rule on the books and it's not clear how, you know, the clean power plan springing back into existence hurts anybody. It's not clear how not having the ACE rule on the books hurts anybody asking the court to hear this case. And so, yeah, it has exactly the flavor of an advisory opinion, which in any other case, like certainly one an environmental group trying to bring, right? Um, that would be a problem. Uh, okay. So that's just level one of ridiculousness here. The the fact that this case exists at all, the fact that the Supreme Court took this case is already a big red flag. Moving beyond that, let's talk about the substantive legal issues involved. Uh, I think there are three going from narrowest to most broad. They are the fence line question, the major questions issue, and the non-delegation doctrine. I imagine that for most listeners, all three of those are gobbledygook. So let's start with the narrow one. The Clean Power Plan, as you said, Jack, just told states, here's your here's the average carbon intensity of your power sector that you're targeting. It's up to you how you reach that. You can you know, you can put pollution controls on power plants, but you can also just build more clean power. You can implement some energy efficiency. You can, I think they even had sort of like extras, like you can fund electric vehicles. It's very flexible. And so what that means is that that rule can be construed as requiring changes outside the fence line of the power plant, as they say, changes that are outside of the regulated entity. And the, the petitioners here are saying that is beyond the authority that the Clean Air Act grants EPA. So my question is just, is there anything in statute that would restrict EPA's sort of range of motion here? Or is, <laughs> or is this just like it feels like too much. It feels like they're going beyond their authority. Is there any objective measure of how much authority EPA has here? So the fight here is about three words, essentially, in Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. EPA, in crafting these emission guidelines for the states, Mm -hmm. is supposed to identify the best system of emission reduction for the affected source category. Right. And in this case, what EPA did, and so that's how it figures out how to set the target for the states, because it's saying like, look, we've identified what we think is the best system of emission reduction. So then we model like how much emission reduction would you get if you used that system, you'd get to this level. Now you don't have to use that system, but you have to get to at least the same level as you would if you used the system that we've identified. And what EPA did in the Clean Power Plan is say, 
Well, the best system of emission reduction for existing power plants is three things. There were these three building blocks. And the first was improve the heat rate of your coal plants, right? So improve the efficiency with which your coal plants turn coal into electricity. Um, That doesn't get you very much, right? Then the second building block is, okay, we have excess capacity at existing natural gas plants, right? We're using them at you know 60% of their annual capacity but we could reasonably expect them to run at 70% of their annual capacity so if we assumed that you did that that you shifted generation in that way how much would that reduce average emissions mm-hmm. and then finally building block 3 is what could we reasonably expect you to develop in terms of new renewables in the relevant grid region right okay if you developed that much and, and we shifted generation there, how much could we reduce emissions on average? And then putting those blocks together, EPA came up with a target rate for each state. Right. And the argument here is, no, the only one of those that was okay was one, the heat rate improvements at coal plants, because you are limited to things that can happen within the fence line of an individual facility. Those other things aren't systems of emission reduction. Even though, you know, systems of emission reduction is a really broad term, right? It's not, (laughs) it it doesn't say technology. It specifically says system. I mean, the word system itself, come on. And so the challengers here are saying that can't possibly be what Congress meant. And I mean, we can talk a lot more about this this issue. I have way too much to say about it, but I don't want to, I don't want to. Well, no, this is, this is the heart of it. So I want to get into it a little bit. So first it's worth just pausing and saying Like you mentioned before, if it were true that you're restricted to the first one of those, if it were true that you're restricted to changes that you can make at your actual coal plant, you are only going to be making marginal changes. Basically, like, you know, increasing the heat rate of your coal plant is a very tiny change in emissions. Or you're going to be installing carbon capture and sequestration, right, which is still, I think, probably going to be ruled too speculative, too expensive, too technologically in the future to count as a best system. So so you're left with heat rate improvements, which is basically nothing. Like if that is what you're restricted to, then you effectively are not going to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions by any substantial well, amount. I, I Just to clarify, you know, I do think there there's a wide range of things you could do inside the fence line. It's true that what EPA did here you know, the inside the fence line component of the clean power plant building blocks was very modest, the heat rate improvements. And the ACE rule, the Trump administration's rule was just that, um, (laughs) was just those heat rate improvements. And so it was expected to result in at best modest um, reductions and actually could have increased emissions. Yes, I always thought that was hilarious. If you make coal plants more efficient, (laughs) well, you know, we do economic dispatch in the electricity system. So maybe they'll get run more often and actually like aggregate emissions will go up even if the emission rate goes down. Um, But there are other things you could do. So there's co-firing with natural gas at coal plants would reduce their emissions. There is CCS. And so, I mean, this came up at oral argument. It's not necessarily the case that outside the fence line approaches are more stringent than inside the fence line changes. You could do something really stringent inside the fence line. Yeah, if you require CCS, right. that's like you're destroying the entire existing coal fleet at, at, at a stroke. And sure, then we'll have a fight about whether it's adequately demonstrated or whether it costs too much, but that's a different fight, right? That's not the fight we're having right now. Right. So 
why, I guess what I want to know is the red states here, the coal companies are saying that outside the fence line, the latter two categories you were discussing exceed the authority granted by the words best system of emission reduction. And if I'm a judge, I want to know, well, why? Says who? Based on what? So is there is there an argument? Is there textual evidence? Is there anything beyond the sort of bare assertion, well, that's too far? I mean, there are arguments that are just about the text, like before we get to the major questions bit of all of this. I don't find them that persuasive. But for example, one of them is, you know, as Jack mentioned, the EPA sets the standard and then the state's enforce that standard and kind of like decide how to do it on the ground under the statute. And so, for example, the states point to the fact that like the the part of the statute that talks about the states setting these, you know, implementing these standards on the ground refers to source singular rather than source plural and sources plural, I should say. And, And so like that is somehow an indication that it's supposed to be like really focused on specific sources and not considering anything beyond that. And they have kind of like other arguments that get into like rules of grammar and um, <laughs> the statute that we're talking about here, section 111 of the Clean Air Act has like a definition section and then operative provisions. And they kind of copy and paste the definitions into the operative section and say, well, if you read it with all the definitions copied and pasted in, it looks like a statute that's focused on individual sources. But I, I to my mind, um, I just don't think they have a great answer to the to the idea that like system is, as you said, David, a really broad word, and that there are other parts of this same provision that like kind of expressly do require an at the source kind of technological solution. And so Congress could have used those words and it Right, didn't. right. That's worth emphasizing too. Like if it were the intention to restrict action to inside the fence line, it's super, super easy to make that clear, right? Like it's been made clear in other places. It's not something that's ambiguous in other cases, right? Like it takes some effort to read that into this language. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, Jack's definitely the Clean Air Act expert here, but like the Clean Air Act is just filled with all these different choices of words to describe the standards or the technology to use. And like, really, it's so hard to read the statute as a whole and not realize that Congress was like trying different things in different parts of the statute and that what it was trying here is broader than what it was trying in other places. And for decades, EPA, under administrations of both parties, right, has been using these sorts of flexible emission reduction techniques like trading Mm -hmm. um, under a variety of Clean Air Act provisions that don't expressly authorize that sort of thing, right? Like we've done trading for vehicle fuels. We've done trading for auto emission standards. We've done trading for um, and averaging for Uh, like stationary combustion turbines, like emergency generators. And courts have repeatedly said, you know, as long as there's not an express prohibition on doing that, we're going to let you read this vague language to allow this very sensible cost reducing thing, right? Which traditionally, uh, like Republican administrations were very fond of, right? They love market mechanisms. (laughs) Yes, I I wanted to make a note of that too. Like allegedly conservatives love flexibility and the whole the whole reason the clean power plan was as complex as it was is that the administration bent over backward to maximize flexibility at every stage. Like you would think it would be exactly what Republicans want. Right. This is the nice rule. (laughs) 
One odd part of the uh, West Virginia-led coalition's argument is that because the same word systems of performance and best systems of emission production are used like all over this, this statutory provision, one of the odd parts of West Virginia's argument is that not only does EPA have to focus on kind of like rigid at the source command and control type technologies, but that the states don't have any flexibility when they're implementing those regulations. And that's why at argument you saw the coal companies disagree with West Virginia about that kind of weird consequence of the arguments in this case. And they were like, no, no, we states still have flexibility because like you can interpret other words to allow it, which is just a real like indication that this isn't an efficient just as a policy matter, this is such an inefficient, cost ineffective way of doing the statute. Yeah, this is just, I, I just want to bang on this one more time. Like, if the petitioners succeed here, the effect will be to make regulation narrower, less flexible, more expensive, and less efficacious, which is yet another irony. So, Jack, do you think they're going to? I mean, one possible outcome here is that they don't move on to the two more broad questions that we're going to discuss, and they just rule narrowly on the fence line question. Do you, obviously, I don't want you to be guessing what's going to happen, but is that sort of one of the possibilities that they just affirm uh, West Virginia's view of the fence line question? Yeah. So, I mean, actually, one, one other possibility that I do just want to note is that the Supreme Court could still just decide, like, oops, don't want to decide this case, right? <laughs> they, they could they could dismiss this case as improvidently granted, which is a thing that they do. Kirti knows more about this than I do. But, you know, they could say, like, yes, uh, you know, we granted cert, we agreed to hear the case, but now we realize this is definitely an advisory opinion. We don't do that. There's no rule in place. So we're just going to wait for the Biden administration to actually develop its replacement for ACE. And then like inevitably someone will sue um, and say it's illegal. And then we'll weigh it because that's how we do right, things right. as a court. <laughs> if they decide after all not to take the case, the practical effect will be the Biden administration will come up with some new EPA scheme and then they'll sue again. And eventually we'll be back probably to the Supreme Court right. years in the future. Right. But at that point, the court would have the benefit of knowing like what EPA actually chose <laughs> yeah. to do. So we wouldn't be yeah. speculating as to whether like, right. is CCS okay? Is co-firing okay? Is the trading okay if it's just between fossil fuel plants and doesn't involve renewables, right? Like there'd be, the agency would have done something and the court could then say like thumbs up, thumbs down, as opposed to this weird. Yeah, this this weird advisory thing, which which again, like conservative judicial philosophy would say you don't want judges telling legislatures and administrative uh, agencies how to legislate. Like you don't want judges legislating. You don't want judges telling EPA how to interpret rules by and large. Like th the whole point is restraint. The whole point is we're not going to step in unless somebody crosses some crazy line. And this is real close to just like inserting themselves into EPA's rulemaking. <laughs> like, Right. And what, do they, what do they know about, about any of it? Before we recorded this today, I was looking at a, a letter that the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, wrote to George Washington in 1793. With the, the Washington administration asked for some advice on how to interpret a treaty. And John Jay said, oh, sorry, we don't do that. That's not a thing. Yes. So this is, you know, a well-established principle that the court... From the jump. Yeah. Sometimes it would be great to get advice, but that's not what it does. Right. So um, so that is a result that, you know, I think 
could still happen here. Could still happen. It would not be unprecedented by any means. But what about a narrow fence line ruling? Is that among the uh, possibilities where they just say, all we're going to say about this case is it's got to stay within the fence line when EPA makes a new rule? I mean, just that narrow and nothing else. Is that a possible outcome? Yeah, that could happen. Um, and again, I'd love for Kirti to weigh in. But uh, the Trump rule said... We have to repeal the Clean Power Plan because the Clean Power Plan was illegal. That mm, they said, you know, right. uh, Section 111 unambiguously precludes <laughs> us from going no. beyond. Like this the, turns out, no, system doesn't. of emission reduction unambiguously does not include outside the fence line stuff, and so we have no choice but to repeal this rule. So they, you know, they could have done something different. They could have said this is ambiguous. And we as an agency are generally um, given discretion to interpret ambiguous statutory provisions, right? right? Courts will, when a statute is ambiguous, defer to the agency's choice so long as it's reasonable. So the Trump administration could have done that. But then that would have allowed a subsequent administration to adopt a, a different interpretation. So what they wanted to do was forever shut that down and right. say, no, um, you know, we're going nuclear here. We're saying this statute unambiguously precludes what the Clean Power Plan did. And what the D.C. Circuit said, you know, the decision below is like, that's not right. If, if Bas basically mocked it as close right. as courts ever come to as judges ever come to just openly mocking uh, someone. And so the court here could say, like, no, actually, that was right. 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 You know, and we're just basing that on the text of the statute. All we're doing is, you know, using traditional tools of statutory interpretation. We're not talking about the major questions doctrine. We're just saying that's not, you know, the Trump administration was right. Best system of emission reduction doesn't mean outside the fence line techniques. Right. And and toward the end, I want to return to uh, sort of what EPA might do in that event. But first, let's look at the let's move on here past the fence line to the bigger questions involved. So the second is called the major questions doctrine. And this is the idea that if Congress wants something big and significant done, it needs to say so. It's not permissible for an agency to interpret a statute so broadly that the agency ends up making the decision to do something big and consequential. The agencies cannot address major questions themselves. They need to wait for guidance from the legislature. So, Kirti, first off, can you point me to the location in the Constitution <laughs> where it says... Agencies may do minor or medium things, but not major things. Is there constitutional text to support this doctrine at all? Yeah, so um, no uh, <laughs> is the answer to that question. And, and you know, you previewed that we're going to get into the non-delegation doctrine, which is the constitutional version of all of this. But so major questions is not meant to be a constitutional question. No. Well, who knows what major <laughs> questions is. <laughs> And I, I say that really not that flippantly. So like first, it's worth mentioning that the word major questions doctrine is like some really good PR because doctrine implies like, oh, it's always like this is so well entrenched and like we've been doing this for ages and everybody right. knows this to be so. And that's just not the case. And if I can be a law nerd for maybe 45 seconds, please, if you want to like trace this back and look at all the cases that are being cited in the briefs. You know, this comes from a set of cases 
And it's really only like a couple of lines in these cases. So we're already kind of grasping, mm -hmm. but it comes from some cases where, you know, the normal rule, as Jack kind of mentioned, is if you take the statute, you read it, you try and figure out what it means. And if it's kind of unclear at the end of the day, courts generally will defer to the administrative agency's view about what the statute means, because like they do this all the time. It's their day right. job. Congress probably wanted it to be that way. There are all sorts of reasons. And so the major questions line of cases started when some people on the court were kind of uncomfortable with that idea of deferring to the agency. And there were a couple of cases where the court said, basically, like, this is too big to defer. And, you know, one of those cases is like a statute about companies having to file their rates with an administrative agency that then they couldn't exceed. And the agency said, well, my ability to modify that requirement counts as the ability to exempt somebody from that requirement. Mm. And so the court was like, that doesn't make any sense as a matter of statutory text. And also, it's like a really big interpretation that would change the meaning of the statute. So we're not going to defer to you. And then it just interpreted the statute and said, like, no dice. So that's what all those cases have the flavor of. But so that's just like, okay, instead of the agency interpreting the statute, the court's interpreting the statute, right? Right. It's, it's literally just a, a who, like the phrase who decides comes up in a lot in these cases, but, but that <laughs> right. literally was a who decides issue. But as it's being offered in this case, as you described it, it's a rule that if the court thinks that the agency is addressing a problem of economic and political significance, then Congress has to have written the statute super clearly to reassure the court that it really meant for the agency to do that. And that's just not how these sentences in the cases have been doing this. And it really wasn't until the eviction moratorium case and the vaccine cases on the court shadow docket that it was used in this way. Um, in any sort of like clear, obvious sense. And so it's a it's like a pretty big sea change because, I mean, one reason this is so odd is like it's this new rule and it's telling Congress how to write statutes. But we have all these statutes on the books that Congress has already written unaware of this rule that was going to be developed in 2022. And so it's just such a I don't know. It's an odd duck. And also, I just think like, you know, you're writing the Clean Air Act in whatever the 60s and 70s. It, the Clean Air Act legendarily is written in a way that grants wide latitude to the agencies. I mean, the, the structure of the law is basically Americans deserve clean air. EPA should just identify anything that makes it dirty and get rid of it. That is, by nature, expansive. So how could Congress, even if they had this rule in mind, how can you write a rule saying we want clean air for now and forever, even though science will continue to develop and find new, you know, dangers and technology will continue to develop, how could they have possibly written the rule to anticipate anything that would count as major? Like, this, just, I don't even know how Congress would do that if it was aware of the rule. I think you're pointing out that this is kind of a fiction about the, like, theory of how this would all shake out in practice, that exactly in the Clean Air Act, in the Clean Water Act, in these big environmental statutes, Congress wrote forward-looking, capacious, technology-forcing statutes that were designed to be adaptive because command and control is inefficient and doesn't work. Right. And it's, it's really an impossible fit between statutes that give agencies and the EPA that kind of authority and this view that, like, I don't know, the briefs don't say what Congress should have done here, but I take it to be something like um, EPA can use generation shifting when setting standards of performance. 
Like, I think that's what they want Congress to have said. And as you just said, David, like, that's not how Congress writes statutes, nor is there any good reason for why Congress should have to write statutes that way. The whole point of expert agencies is that they're experts on questions like this in a way that Congress isn't. This is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but I'm just going to bang on it one more time. Like, these rules from the 60s and 70s, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, are capacious, are written to be, you know, sort of adaptable to circumstances and and to grow and and evolve to achieve their goals. And conservatives have always hated them for exactly that reason, because they have been so adaptable. They've just grown and expanded as intended, but conservatives have always hated that and they've never been able to get democratic support you know, small D democratic support for overturning the rules or changing the rules. So they've been searching for decades for some way to go after and thwart these rules. So it doesn't seem like a big secret what's going on here. Well, they haven't always hated these laws, David, right? The Clean Air Act was passed by a nearly unanimous Congress in 1970. And the Clean Air Act amendments of 1977 were passed by a huge bipartisan majority and the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1990 were pushed by George H.W. Bush and again passed by a huge bipartisan congressional majority. So actually, these hugely ambitious statutes were the product of both parties' interest in, as you said, like granting like intentionally pretty sweeping powers to EPA to address new threats and use new technology and new systems to do it. So I, I you know, absolutely, the politics of environmental protection have only gotten more partisan over time. But like, these aren't Democrat statutes, right? Right. These are like the Clean Air Act was like literally almost unanimous. I think there was one abstention. And the provision that we're talking about was part of that 1970 Act. Right. So do you think it's defensible to say, like, if you're a conservative, if I'm a conservative, and I say, Yes, I supported those laws. I supported uh, the updates to those laws because they're addressing pollutants, criteria pollutants. But once you move to greenhouse gases, you're moving to something that's sort of ubiquitous in society that involves much more than just power generation or transportation, you know, the entire economy. Like, do you buy the argument that going from criteria pollutants to greenhouse gases crosses over into major. (laughs) You're then in a major question. Does that seem plausible to you at all? I mean, one reason the answer might be no is that the Supreme Court said the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) In Massachusetts versus EPA, where the George W. Bush administration said, you know, we can't regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act because unlike all those other pollutants, this would be like a change in the statute and it would have tons of effects. And the Supreme Court in a 5-4 case said, no, the fact that Congress used the broad term air pollutant doesn't mean anything other than it used a broad term and it wrote a broad statute. And, you know, all the same cases that are being cited now were cited in that case. And the court basically like brushed it aside. And, you know, frankly, the only thing that's changed since that decision is that the court has changed a lot. A specific question then. Would a possible outcome here be the court reversing Mass versus EPA, reversing that ruling? Or are they going to try to craft something that can at least facially be seen as commensurate with that ruling? 
Nobody's asking them to do that in this case, thankfully, and I don't think they need to because what the court has been doing since Massachusetts versus EPA is in other cases, uh, one called utility error. It's basically said that even though EPA, like even if you accept that EPA has the authority to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, the way it can do that under different provisions might be different than the way it regulates other air pollutants. And so in the utility air case, it basically restricted the scope of EPA's authority compared to its authority over other pollutants. And this case is kind of another, potentially another iteration of that, where they're kind of like greenhouse gas specific ways that the Clean Air Act works, basically. Mm. So what would a ruling based on the major questions doctrine, I'm now putting scare quotes around doctrine, (laughs) Uh, what would a ruling based on major questions look like? <laughs> it's so it's I feel like the reason there is this like long pause is because it's so hard to say. I mean, the justices were asking, you know, exactly that question. Different justices, including Justice Thomas, you know, including Justice Kagan were asking, like, how does this actually work? Right. Um, because the litigants are just like throwing a bunch of factors at the court and hoping that you know somebody agrees with them that this is a major question. And like, question number one is, what's the question we're asking whether or not it's major, right? And yeah. I don't think that is clear, but you know, West Virginia says it's this inside the fence line, outside the fence line, that's the question. But then all the factors are like the amount of money involved, you know, whether it's transformative, I don't know what transformative means, whether it's a new claim <laughs> of authority, whether there are new entities covered, whether this is like, quote unquote, outside EPA's lane, uh, the number of, oh, like, the amount of public attention. The famous the constitutional the doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stay inside your lane. It's right there in Article 3. Yeah. And all of those are like super malleable and in the eye of the beholder. Totally. And so like you can write an opinion that says it's major based on any of that, but you could just as easily write an opinion the other way. And, you know, just to, to knock on something that's always struck me as so odd about this is like, you know, the Clean Power Plan, when the EPA issued it, there was like uh, an assessment of how much it would cost and how much change it would have, right? But as Jack pointed out, in the end, it wouldn't have cost all of that and wouldn't have had such effects because that's what happened anyway right. without the rule. And so like, it just to me is like, there are so many reasons why it's odd for the Supreme Court or any court to be considering how expensive something is when it's interpreting a statute. Yes. But one of them is like, that's probably not easy to get right at the outset. Yes. And and the court doesn't like have economists on staff, you know, so it's just it's so antithetical to everything that at least I was taught about how to interpret statutes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's worth saying if the court had ruled back in 2016 that this was a major question, they would have been rendered uh, <laughs> wrong by subsequent events very clearly and brutally, right? Like it's completely unambiguous at this point that it was not major. It turned out to be super cheap. It turned out to happen anyway without any rule. You would think the court might look at that and think, well, maybe when it comes to complex economic issues around pollution, we don't know whether it's major or not. And we're not equipped to figure that out. You might think like judicial restraint would suggest that they shouldn't be guessing about what is and isn't major. David, this is also true for a lot of the other factors that the petitioners push here. 
they imply that the agency's power to do something can shift over time. So it's like this year legal, next year not legal, because this year expensive, next year not. They also cite things like the controversy around the clean power plan. So like if you did it and it wasn't controversial, (laughs) it would be okay. But if someone like then does a big PR campaign to gin up controversy around it, now it's not okay says the constitution. So, and um, like number of comments filed, what the president said about it in press conferences. (laughs) And then also even the idea, well, you can't do something that's too novel, right? It implies that when a statute is first passed, the agency, you know, its lane is really broad. It can do a lot of things, but then as it makes some choices, the lane narrows and it loses the ability to do those other things. And so it's like, well, when does it lose it, right? Is it after like the first administration that got to implement the Clean Air Act or the second? It's just like completely unworkable. This is like, how old does the statute have to be before something counts as novel? Or how, uh, (laughs) like how new, like it's just worth saying about that question about all these, there's just no settled doctrine here about what is and isn't major. And there are just a million practical difficulties in a set of judges deciding what is and isn't major. So it looks to me, I mean, tell me either of you if you think this is too cynical, but the whole major questions, quote unquote, doctrine looks to me like a court that has a conservative majority that they know is going to be a conservative majority for decades, just saying we derogate to ourselves the power to strike down laws we don't like and rules we don't like that disagree with our political preferences. It just is like a carte blanche for them to impose political preferences. Is it not? Yeah. I mean, I I don't like to, (laughs) I get, I don't want to like, you know, attribute intentionality to any part of this, but like, it is just a true fact that justices like the chief justice uh, and like a famous dissent in a, in a case called the city of Arlington and justice like justice Gorsuch and his Gundy dissent have like, basically said that as a matter of like policy, it's bad when agencies have too much authority. It's like anti-democratic, it's whatever, whatever. And it's also a true fact that the major questions doctrine is inherently deregulatory, right? Because when the agency tries to do something new, when the agency tries to do something big, the court assumes that it can't do that basically, right? But it doesn't work the other way around if the agency says... (laughs) Um, I can't do something big, so I'm not going to regulate. There's no major questions attack on that. So those two things are true. And then like, you know, anybody can, you know, draw whatever conclusions you want from that. But, you know, I do think all of this is working in the same direction. Yeah, it's a one way, a one way ratchet. And regardless of whether, you know, this case is ultimately decided and whether the major questions doctrine plays a role in this decision, like you can count on this kind of argument coming up over and over in lower courts in like every challenge to everything the Biden administration tries to do. Well, it already has, right, Jack? <laughs> right. It's like, it, I don't know, um, David, if you've been following this, but, uh, you know, a district court in Louisiana recently enjoined the entire federal government from using the social cost <laughs> of carbon metric. Uh, right. Major questions came up in that decision. The idea being that departing from the discount rate traditionally used in agency cost-benefit analyses. Usually you use 3 and 7% rates. The social cost of carbon uses, I think, 2, 3, and 5. That 
implicated the major questions doctrine. Uh, it is a big <laughs> deal to use a different discount rate in your cost benefit analysis. So, so right there in the Constitution, right, this exactly. is we're just we're just originalists. We're just trying to figure out what the founders, what discount rate did the founders intend? That's the major question here. Yeah, and it's also come up in the the FERC, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's like decision to issuing basically like guidance on how it's going to mm-hmm. consider greenhouse gases in its work. Uh, and so, like, part of me wonders if this is just like a climate change role. Like, maybe that's the limit on the major right. questions doctrine. <laughs> just right. it applies to COVID cases and climate change cases. <laughs> <laughs> just you know, tiny problems. <laughs> Anything conservatives don't like. You know, I mean, that's there's no objectivity here. There's no standard as evidenced by the sort of scattershot arguments we're seeing in this case. There's no standard for it. Moving on from major questions or not really moving on. Explain to me, Kirti, how the non-delegation, does that count as a doctrine too? Are they trying to call that a doctrine (laughs) too? Like what non-delegation means and how it sort of relates to major questions and what my understanding is that if the Supreme Court wanted to go truly nuclear in this case, non-delegation is where they would focus. So just tell us like what that means and what's at stake there. Yeah, sure. So um, so as you kind of hinted at, there's kind of two justifications for the major questions doctrine. One is like as an empirical matter, this is true that Congress doesn't intend to give agencies this kind of authority. So we're just going to assume that's not what it did. And the second version of it is as kind of a avoidance canon of interpretation or like a rule that says we have to read the statute this way to avoid a non-delegation problem. And the non-delegation doctrine basically says um, there are kind of like different versions and different justifications for it. But it basically says because Article one of the Constitution says that the legislative power is vested in Congress, Congress can't give that power away to anybody else. And you know, it's been it was used basically like twice in 1935 to strike down parts of a, a New Deal legislation and hasn't really come up since. That was a hyper conservative court back then, too, right, that did that. At least it was, a yeah, sim, I guess similar in the sense that it was like skeptical of the project of, you know, <laughs> expansive agency right. you know, authority to address pressing problems. Um, but yeah, so so it really hasn't been like a thing, probably because precisely because that like it like the major questions doctrine that we've been discussing. It's so hard to say, like, what is giving away too much power? Right. right. Like, what's the right. line? How do we enforce it? And, you know, one reason the courts haven't enforced it is because it's just too hard um, to like find any sort of justifiable line. And I think it's worth pointing out that like the court has rejected a non-delegation challenge to the Clean Air Act itself. Oh, really? Um, in an opinion by Justice Scalia. <laughs> so, so, you know, that somebody challenged the, the NACs, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards Provision of the Clean Air Act, which basically tells EPA to regulate pollutants that like, you know, it decides are harmful. And the court considered a non-delegation challenge to that statute, and it said there isn't one because there's sufficient guidance in it to what the agency is supposed to do. And the statute here tells the EPA, consider the costs, consider the effects on energy consumption, consider the effects on the environment, consider what's been achieved. There are all sorts of guardrails here. And so it's hard for me to see how it would be compatible applying the major questions doctrine or going even further and applying the non-delegation doctrine, which I think is not really on the table. And saying this statute goes too far when there's Supreme Court precedent saying a very similar statute that is arguably broader does not go too far. By the same to Scalia, was that was that Chevron? 
that was women versus American trucking. I just wanted to pick up on one thing there. Um, in terms of the, the constraints that are built into this statute on the agency's discretion, this came up at oral argument. Like West Virginia Solicitor General was arguing, well, if you let EPA do this generation shifting, there's no limit to it, right? It could just, you know, completely ban coal. It could completely ban fossil fuels. And some of the justices pushed back and said, well, there are these other factors in the statute, right? The EPA has to consider cost in picking the best system. It has to consider energy requirements. And um, the West Virginia SG said, well, but with a problem as big as climate change, like cost, the obligation to consider cost isn't really a constraint, right? Because anything could be justified, which I think is just a Oops. hilarious concession, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I know. So, and, and then Justice Alito picked it back up and made a similar point later in an argument, like, well, but if climate change really is an existential threat, are these really constraints? Isn't there, couldn't you justify doing anything? Gosh, you're you're almost you're so close, guys. Right, you're so right. close. You're almost there. Um, <laughs> but I think the the implication there is that it's not just that agencies can't do big things, but it's agencies can't do small things to tackle big problems. Because if we let them do even small things, right, they might Who get ideas next, about doing right? bigger things. Which, like, I, I just that is terrifying to me, right? Like we can't do any, we can't use any authorities to address climate change because climate change is such a big problem that if we really wanted to do something about it, we could justify a whole lot. So we can't try at all. Uh, it's illegal. <laughs> yeah. And his question, he did, he asked a question that was like, when, so this is going back to major questions a little bit, but he, he Justice Alito asked like, do I just look at the statute before or the, the regulation before me? So in this case, I guess it's the Clean Power Plan. Or do I like hypothesize anything the agency could do under this interpretation and decide whether any of that is major? And that is, you know, you could probably spin out any hypothetical you, you wanted if you're right. just if you're just like going through some doomsday scenario and it ignores, as Jack mentioned, all these guardrails in the statute, it ignores that there's this like whole process in place for when agencies act, right? They have to propose a rule, they have to comment on it, they have to explain themselves, it gets challenged. They keep saying it's non-democratic, but in fact, there are, you know, the whole process is is ridden with opportunities for public feedback and et cetera, et cetera. Like it's very democratic. Yeah. And for feedback from the courts, right? Like if the agency did one of those wild things, the court could then step in and say, no, that's too far. It doesn't have to anticipate it years in advance. (laughs) It's also anticipating it years in advance seems very explicitly advisory. There's just no, there's no way around. Couldn't agree more. Like, here is how you have to interpret something is very obviously anticipating. It's there's no way to interpret that except as advisory. This is driving me crazy. So did we learn anything from oral arguments? I mean, you know, everybody's obliged to to say the caveat. Oral arguments might not reveal anything that might be misleading. We can't figure anything out from them. But where did you guys see any flags and oral arguments that might suggest where this is headed? I'll be curious, Jack, what you think, but I was somewhat like heartened by the fact that Justice Thomas in particular was asking like real questions about aren't there major questions on all sides of this? Like, wouldn't something like carbon capture be really expensive, but inside the fence line versus, you know, like something that can be done outside the fence line that wouldn't be as major. And I just wonder if 
you know, maybe this isn't the case where it really makes sense to lay this down because it's just so difficult to explain why it applies here. Um, but I might be being incredibly naive. <laughs> when did when did Thomas start talking? Uh, he's been asking questions ever since. I mean, he he occasionally has asked questions, and I think he said this publicly that he like the the fray of oral argument in person is like not pleasant <laughs> and not that productive, and so that's his reason for not asking questions. But he's been asking questions since the court moved to recorded arguments because the format changed, where uh. they like everybody gets a chance basically. So he's not like interrupting anyone or being interrupted. And so it's a little bit more civilized. Yeah. It's got to be civilized. Kirti, I agree with your assessment of oral (laughs) argument. I went in like expecting the worst. And so was pleasantly surprised that there was skepticism um, (laughs) expressed by some of the conservative justices about applying the major questions doctrine here. But then we're back to why they took the case. What's what explains that disjunct there? If it's so obviously goofy of a case, why did they take it? I mean, they have been interested in this regulation in the Clean Power Plan in this area since, as Jack said, 2016, right when they stayed the Clean Power Plan in a sort of first of its kind decision. So, you know, one answer is they never got their shot to to fully address the Clean Power Plan. And this is that. The other answer is there are a lot of justices who have expressed interest in this major questions doctrine and they haven't put it into place in like a full opinion where there was like full briefing and argument yet. And so this, it was teed up for them as a chance to do that. And so this is their chance. They know that EPA is writing a rule. So maybe they, uh, some of the justices feel like it is important to step in and make sure EPA doesn't go too far. Um, I think there are all sorts of reasons that um, aren't necessarily like based in doctrine, but there are all sorts of explanations you can spin out for why they took the case. Mm. And there, you only need four votes, right, to grant cert. Yeah. So we. Yeah. So it could be that only four of them wanted to take the case. Right. And they re, they they considered it. Usually the justices will like they'll get a petition for certiorari. They'll consider it. They might hold it over one time to just make sure there aren't any problems with the case, and then they'll grant it. Um, but in this case, they they held it over three times, I think, which indicates that like somebody was either like they couldn't get enough votes the first time around, or mm. they really were asking some questions about these jurisdictional issues. So maybe maybe there's still um, yeah, like as Jack said, that's still an option on the table. Yeah, because the the sort of new situation here, you know, so Roberts kind of legendarily wants to preserve the court's reputation, doesn't want to do anything too radical, doesn't want to blow up. You know, doesn't want to risk court reform, et cetera. But he's not in control uh, anymore. <laughs> you know, they can get they can get a conservative majority without him. So, I wonder how much that has to do with things. Yeah, well, and the court has so many other big cases on its docket this term. Like we obviously think this case is important, and anyone listening does. But you could see a decision in this case getting drowned out a bit um, by guns or abortion or voting rights or anything else that the court's talking about. Ugh. Well, let's let's go real quick, just sort of review the possible outcomes here, sort of from narrowest to, to, to broadest, just like we, you know, discussed the questions involved. I mean, the first thing they could do, obviously, is just dismiss the case, just let the D.C. Circuit Court's ruling stand based on, I guess, standing. But assuming they don't do that, Jack, like, what's the narrowest ruling you could see here? Would it just be about the fence line? Is that the is that the sort of most targeted ruling and therefore best case scenario? 
Well, I think they could rule on the fence line issue in a variety of ways, right? It depends on how they write it. So even that, there's kind of a spectrum, I think, like, Mm. is the problem just that there are renewables in the mix? Or is it the fact that there's any kind of generation shifting? But I think something related to just what counts as a system of emission reduction, we're not looking to major questions. We're just saying, like, if we look at the text of Section 111 of the Clean Air Act and use our usual tools, what does it mean? It doesn't mean what EPA did in the Clean Power Plan. The Trump administration was right about that. ACE was legal, you know, at least <laughs> like that aspect of it, that justification for it, what was correct, the DC Circuit was wrong. I think that would be the narrowest version if they actually decide the case. But Kirti, if, if you disagree, please step in. No, I think that's exactly right. And then so then what would a step beyond that be like, what would it look like for them to make a ruling based on major questions? Would that would that just be tantamount to saying, I don't don't know what that would be tantamount to, Curti, what would that look like, a ruling based on major questions? Yeah, I mean, what they've done in the um, in the vaccine case, for example, is they said, like, we expect Congress to speak clearly when it when an agency is exercising broad powers, basically. And so, you know, it might just say EPA is trying to exercise a broad power. Um, It'll have to give reasons for that. And and as Jack said about the statute, there are broader and narrower ways to to describe the reason why something's major. And then it can just say, we're looking to see if Congress clearly authorized that. And any ambiguity in the statute means that Congress didn't authorize it. And it can kind of stop there and not really get into the rest of the endeavor of interpreting the statute. Um, But I think, yeah, just to like repeat it a little bit, like I think what Jack said about there's a broad and narrow way to to do the statutory part of it. There's a broad Mm -hmm. and narrow way to do major questions. But I think also, I mean, it's worth pointing out what Jack or emphasizing what Jack said earlier, which is like, this is already out there. Mm -hmm. You know, this district court, Louisiana, FERC, like it's coming up in cases, the major questions doctrine. And it's going to keep coming up, frankly, probably regardless of what the court says in this case. So um, unless they say it's not a thing. <laughs> right. Is there is is there I mean, I, I know the major questions thing is going to come up in a lot of different areas of law and regulation now. But if the court says in this case or if they just refrain from saying it's a major question, does that settle its major question status or does that leave open the possibility that some future lawsuit could bring the major questions question up again. I mean, is there such a thing as precedent on what is and isn't a major question? Yeah, my guess is, um, and I don't want (laughs) to, you know, hypothesize too much, but, and and Jack, let me know if you agree, but my guess is if they just rolled on the statute, they'd just say, we don't have any need to get into major questions. And that would kind of leave open whether or not, um, you know, they could bring it up in the future. Right. Yeah. I think it'll, it could come up in the context of other Clean Air Act provisions, right? But mm. but probably not not with respect to what system of emission reduction under Section 111 means again. Right. So it, major questions will probably haunt us uh, for a while. Kirti, you said they're probably not going to go all the way to some sort of non-delegation thing, at least in this case. But just for funsies, let's catastrophize. What would that look like? <laughs> like what would a non-delegation doctrine look like? It just would it be a specific ruling about whether this particular power can be delegated to EPA and and, and what specific power are we even talking about? Like would it, is such a ruling possible in this case? 
at any means possible. The reason I don't think it's going to happen is because it really it's in the background of this case. And like mm -hmm. West Virginia does say, if you interpret the statute broadly, it raises a non-delegation problem. But it's not really briefed in any serious way because, um, frankly, like you can get to very close to the same place by using the major questions doctrine. Like Justice Barrett asked a question, like, what's the space between the major questions doctrine yeah, and non-delegation doctrine? <laughs> and, you know, the answer is probably like, some, but not, you know, miles. Well, also, since we since conservatives made both those things up, they just they can decide how much space there is between them. Right. They're just making them up anyway. So, well, I think you know. the reason the non-delegation doctrine is, you know, you said catastrophize, but the reason it's problematic, they're similar. It, it's what counts as as too much delegation is not a clear line. Right. And so some judges are going to see a problem more than others. And the other reason that it's more problematic than the major questions doctrine is that the result of applying the major questions doctrine is, is like you strike down an agency's regulation and right. you kind of constrain it a little bit in the future. But just, just again, just total hypothetical, but if there was a non-delegation problem with section 111, the whole statute goes away basically, right? You right. can't pick and choose what's acceptable. There's no like as applied is the legal term. There's no as applied version of the non-delegation doctrine. So if there's a non-delegation problem under the statute, EPA can't do anything like even regulate like totally uncontroversial pollutants in totally uncontroversial ways under the statute. So it's a like a blunter tool, I guess, is kind of the difference. Yeah. Or maybe another way to put it is the major questions allows you to go after um, agency interpretations and agency rules but non-delegation allows you to go after statutes, yeah. right? It allows Perfect. you to go after exactly. the laws themselves. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then you're just really explicitly in a world where judges are legislating, <laughs> you know, or legislating in the negative, at least. And it's difficult to overstate, like, the collateral damage that there would be there yes. in order to invalidate Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, right, which is used to regulate many different source categories for many different types of very harmful pollution, right? And we've been doing it since the 70s, uh, so it shouldn't shouldn't be controversial. Curdy, you say that's unlikely in this case just because it's, it's not a good fit. Do you think that the court has it in the back of its head to go after non-delegation somewhere, somewhere else at some point while it has this giant majority? Yeah. Well, I mean, we know that five of the nine justices are interested in it, right? Justice Gorsuch wrote a dissent in a case called Gandhi, where he laid out like a super robust version of the non-delegation doctrine that would really be transformative to borrow a word from West Virginia. <laughs> and Justice Kavanaugh later said like, yeah, I think it's worth thinking about whether that's correct. So that's, that's five. And I think there are some questions about what Justice Barrett thinks, but you have enough justices saying they're interested in this already to like get to a majority opinion in some case. So it's just a question of, you know, one question is if they, you know, really entrench the major questions doctrine, do they even need to go all the way? And like, there might be people who are kind of more purists about their, like the way they articulate their legal thinking, like Justice Gorsuch will be like, yes, we do, <laughs> because that's the right answer. And there might be people who are more pragmatists who are like, ah, why bother when it will get some blowback and we can just achieve the same result. So there's articulated interest by five of the justices. And it's just a question of whether they'll feel the need to go there. Yeah, I mean, blowing up the majority of the modern administrative state seems like even 
for a kind of a, a super right wing nutball is just is just pragmatically courting bad consequences like the America is not just going to sit back and and let that happen. Whereas, as you say, the major questions doctrine just allows you to surgically go in and reject any rule you don't like. So, you know, you get all your political preferences the same way. So, yeah, I mean, Jack sees like all the regulations ever (laughs) come across Jack's desk. So he has a, a better view of like just, you know, examples of the kinds of things that would be off the table under Justice Gorsuch's view. Yeah, I mean, so many, so many statutory provisions are written in much vaguer language than Section 111 of the Clean Air Act, right? So if Section 111 of the Clean Air Act wasn't okay, if saying, choose the best system and consider these factors like cost and, you know, weigh them as you see fit, but consider them, if that's not okay, then so many other agencies' core mandates would also necessarily not be okay. And, And as you say, that would just destroy many of the agencies that provide vital protections uh, in the U.S. And if that did come to pass, the worst, sort of the worst case scenario, would we then sort of be going through a process where one by one statutes are brought before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court then says, nope, that's delegation, throw that out too. Like, are they going to have to just eliminate the pieces of the administrative state one by one or is... Or could they nuke it all at once? I mean, this is all quite speculative, obviously, but like, how would it even work if they did go non-delegation? I don't think you could nuke it all at once. (laughs) (laughs) That's, you know, that is at least under our traditional understanding of how courts work, right? That's not what they do. I think just like a real poll, like even if non-delegation somehow makes its way into a majority opinion, I just think the like real politic of it all is that it'll only be used in cases that seem like true outliers. Mm. Because like, you know, as we talked about at the very beginning, like, I don't think industry wants that world, right? Right. <laughs> and and the consequence of the federal government not regulating things is often that 50 different states regulate things. Yes. And it's like, there's just all these knock on effects that um, I'm not sure anybody wants. And so you could see it like becoming a more robust doctrine that's used more often, but still not being used all that often. Again, I might be possibly naive, but um, yeah. (laughs) No, I think that's right. (laughs) I agree. Well, it's always just a little worse than you think it's going to be. So like, you know, project forward five years, (sighs) a little worse than you think it's going to be then too. (laughs) So Jack, one of the final things I wanted to ask you is sort of kind of what EPA's options are here. It's backup plan. If it's just say, for instance, they, they leave aside non-delegation, they leave aside mostly major questions, and they just say, they just rule on the fence line question, and they say, yes, this is an impermissible interpretation of Section 111. What are EPA's options then for seriously tackling greenhouse gases at power plants? Under Section 111, I think you'd look to some of the things that we mentioned earlier, right? Let's look to what we can do inside the fence line. Maybe we can require coal plants to co-fire with natural gas. Maybe we can require at least some coal plants to use partial CCS, which maybe would vary based on like access to adequate storage, you know, um, and mm. but um, there are things that, that could be tried. And of course, it would have to do the traditional assessment, you know, weighing those factors that we keep coming back to, right? I'd have to think about how much it costs and have to think about whether it can show that it's adequately demonstrated 
to be clear, adequately demonstrated doesn't mean like something that plants are doing right now. Mm -hmm. It can be technology forcing, like the Clean Air Act was designed to be technology forcing. It can't be entirely speculative. Right. So you can't just be like crossing your fingers and hoping it's possible. You have to make the case for why it's possible. Well, one one little irony to insert here is the if Congress does get its act together and get the the climate provisions of the Build Back Better Act passed as they currently exist, one of the things that's in there is an enormous amount of money for tax credits for CCS projects. So you can see all that money being dumped on CCS and CCS ramping up and then being much more demonstrated and then being much more plausible as a best system of emission reduction for coal plants. A hilarious little thing is that uh, back in 2005, in I think it was the Energy Policy Act, there was some funding for CCS and Congress attached language to that funding that said, by the way, any CCS projects that are funded with this money cannot be cited as proof that CCS uh, is adequately uh, demonstrated uh, under Section Hilarious. Um, hilarious. Uh, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because partial CCS is required for new coal plants, that's never right. happened because no one is interested in building any right. new coal plants. But that is on the books, right, under 111B, like the sister provision of the one that we're talking about, which is about existing sources. The Under the rule that's in effect for new sources, coal plants, uh, if someone wants to construct one, uh, you know, have to be equipped with with partial CCS. It would be it would be a delicious irony if if the Supreme Court tried to restrict EPA's range of movement on this and EPA responded by being, all right, well, you've got to use CCS inside the fence line then and just destroyed the whole. Right. Well, I mean, that's just getting us back to the point that like EPA was trying to be nice in this. Yes. Right. Like EPA it went on this like multi-year listening tour. There was oh so much God. stakeholder engagement. Like this, the clean power plan was so many years in the making and EPA bent over backwards to be responsive to stakeholder concerns and to design this flexible rule that like <sighs> reflected what the utility industry actually did um, in practice to reduce emissions. And so, yeah, like they could go and do something a lot more impractical so long as they can back it up with the analysis required by the statute. And that doesn't mean that the plants would then respond by actually using that system, right? They might then instead decide to retire or to do something else. But the, the only other thing I wanted to say about uh, power plants, it's just important, and I know you know this, um, but uh, they emit a lot of other types of pollution too. Yes. Right? Um, and no one disputes EPA's authority to regulate those other types of pollution, mm. right? So um, coal plants are, you know, emitting particulate matter that kills thousands of people every year, right? They are emitting mercury, they are emitting air, other air toxics. So EPA has other authorities to address those pollutants, even if uh, the court were to constrain its authority to address greenhouse gases. And there's absolutely nothing illegitimate <laughs> about addressing well. those other pollutants. Don't speak too soon, Jack. You never know what, what they might discover in the Constitution next. Uh, a slightly related question. If the Supreme Court just rejects this case, decided that it was, <laughs> it was a mistake to take it in the first place and they don't want to look like clowns by making some sweeping judgment on the basis of it, that will leave the question basically undecided. If that happens, do you think Biden's EPA will design a rule that relies on outside the fence line? changes and then just sort of take its chances on winding up back in the Supreme Court eventually? Or 
will they try to act defensively, knowing that Trump might be taking over the EPA in 2024, just to do something that they know will stick and that they know can get implemented? I mean, again, you're speculating wildly here, but like, what? how do you think EPA will react if it's not restricted by this ruling? You don't actually have to speculate because when EPA was telling the Supreme Court not to take this case because it didn't need to yet, it said, we're working on a new rule and we're going to take into account the fact that you, the Supreme Court, stayed the Clean Power Plan in 2016, which is basically saying, like, we understand that this is the Supreme Court we have (laughs) and that they didn't like the Clean Power Plan and we're not going to ignore that. Right. So I don't know the like details of, of how that shakes out, but but they've already said, like, we recognize that we that five justices of the Supreme Court thought the Clean Power Plan went too far. So. So, yeah, it's like already having a deterrent effect. So then we anticipate EPA issuing a rule that will not get entangled in the same fight again, no matter what Supreme Court does. I mean, there'll be a fight. <laughs> yeah, right. They'll get entangled in a slightly different fight. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course, there will be a fight. And Jack, just based on your sort of expertise on the Clean Air Act, do you think EPA is going to be able to create a rule that will create commensurate emission reductions as an outside the fence line rule? In other words, do you think this fence line thing is going to practically restrict what EPA can accomplish? Or do you think they're there are enough ways to work around it that you can end up with a sort of equally stringent system at the end of it. I mean, you know, that's like sort of an empirical modeling question, right? Like if you put in, if you put in co-firing for some plants and CCS for others, you know, how much does that get you? And I, I don't know. You could absolutely get way more meaningful levels of reduction than the Trump administration got with its sad little heat rate improvements rule. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I'm not sure what the comparison would be between the replacement for the clean power plan that the Biden administration would design if it felt like it had unfettered ability to use flexible reduction techniques like generation shifting versus the rule that it will design knowing that the court seems skeptical of that approach. And then there's going to be this question of, well, even if you stay inside the fence line, for purposes of establishing the best system of emission reduction and setting the targets, do you let states use flexible things like trading and shifting for compliance, right? And that's that tension that Kirti mentioned earlier, where um, the coal companies at least are saying like, well, we we want to be able to do these things. We want to be able to just reallocate generation among plants. And we want to be able to take advantage of emission trading. We just want EPA to pretend like we can't do that when it sets the targets. Um. (laughs) Awesome. It's a slightly related question, but if miraculously Congress got its act together before it lost its very extremely slim majority and was going to write a rule clarifying this, such as to moot future lawsuits. Is that even on the table? Is anybody even talking about this? Are they talking in Congress about ways to tweak the Clean Air Act to just sort of settle these questions? Is that even on the table? Kirti, I don't know if if you're familiar with those sorts of discussions now. I know that historically, when Congress has considered passing new climate legislation like Waxman-Markey, there were demands on the right for 
EPA to give up some of its Clean Air Act authority in exchange, mm. right? If we're going to yeah, give right. you this new nationwide trading system, you have to give up your ability to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. And, you know, Democrats were historically not willing to make that trade. So I don't know, you know, I'm not following you know, current debates. I don't know if those sorts of discussions are happening now with respect to Build Back Better. Yeah, I'm also not, I'm not an expert on the current status of legislation, but I will say that you know, one thing this whole case has made me wonder is one irony of all of this is like Congress could, as other folks have pointed out, legislate the major questions doctrine. Like, if, yes. if not, but it could also go the other way. Right. So like yeah. in any future statute, maybe it should be saying that the major questions doctrine does not apply. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does seem like it would be straightforward for Congress to just pass a law saying, yes, Section 111 applies to greenhouse gases and allows for broad interpretation and can go outside the fence line, period. You know, you could do like a paragraph long statute and just pass it and just sort of moot all this. I wonder why that's not a bigger part of Build Back Better or why that hasn't been a bigger part of their deliberations. Or I wonder if maybe Joe Manchin doesn't want EPA to have that power. Okay, I've kept you guys way too long. Uh, This is fascinating, albeit ridiculous on every conceivable level. I guess the final thing I'd ask Kurti is, even if this case doesn't end up straying into major questions territory or worse yet, non-delegation territory, do you feel like this Supreme Court is eventually going to go there regardless <laughs> whether it's this case or not? Yeah, I mean, it already has, like we've been talking about, right? So it's already gone there in the vaccine case. And really the next step is for it to say a little bit more about what it means and maybe put some guardrails on it. And the fact that it has already gone there means that litigants are already using it to bring challenges based on it. Judges are already using it. So again, I think, you know, this is a huge case. I think it really matters what the court says about the major questions doctrine, but at a very practical level, like some of the damage has already been done. Right. And this, you know, another yet another irony uh, of many here is that, you know, you constantly hear conservatives saying they want regulatory predictability and stability and they don't like frivolous lawsuits. And yet almost every aspect of this seems designed to create ambiguity, to create uncertainty about the future of regulation and to inspire all kinds of ridiculous lawsuits. Well, Thank you all so much for, for coming on today and, and walking through this. And, uh, and maybe uh, after there's a ruling, we can reconvene and see <laughs> and, 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 and discuss the wreckage. That would be great. Although I hope, I hope there's no wreckage. Yeah. <laughs> still, still holding out hope for that, dismissing the case. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Kirti. Thanks for having us. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.